And I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter number 9. Isaiah chapter number 9. And uh, let me say, uh, it's nice to have my wife and my baby boy here back with me today. That's a blessing. And uh, everybody kept asking me, said, uh, how's, how's that little baby? I said, well, he's right over there. Amen. So it's a blessing to have him here this morning. And we as a family and, of course, as a church, want to wish you a Merry Christmas and, uh, and a Happy New Year. Isaiah chapter number 9 this morning. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. And most of you know exactly where we're headed this morning. And I want to preach to you about a sevenfold Christmas prophecy. A sevenfold Christmas prophecy. Let's begin reading in verse number one. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness, let me say, praise the Lord for verse number 2, because the Lord's talking about me and you in verse number 2, when He says, "...the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death." You say, who is that preacher? That's you and me. Uh, lost and undone in this world, the, the shadow of death was always upon us, the fear and the dread. But I'm thankful that the Lord hath delivered us from the bondage of sin and hath rescued us from the fear of death, which is the sin, and the power of death, which is sin. Hallelujah this morning. It says, Upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. You say, what's Isaiah talking about there? Well, he's talking about the turmoil in the land of Israel. And he's talking about the lack of peace that they had. And what's going to fix that? What's going to solve the lack of peace in this world? What's going to straighten it all out? Over in the Middle East, I mean, every day there's markets and, uh, and, and schools and places uh, getting blown apart. And there's uh, violence all over the world. And everybody speaks of uh, peace in the Middle East. And I'll tell you, friend, the first peace that's going to come in the Middle East is going to be a false peace. Uh, but uh, what is going to give a lasting, real peace to this world? Well, verse number 6 has the thing, the person, that's going to give a lasting peace. Because it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, bless your word this morning, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would do a work in hearts that needs to be done. God, we just pray for the unction and power of the Holy Ghost in the preaching and in the listening, Lord. And just ask that you would move in our hearts and lives. Make your presence known amongst us this morning, Lord. Uh, we want to thank you. And Father, we don't thank you enough for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, and, uh, I suppose it's so conscious on our minds at this time of the year. But, oh Lord, 
Lord, it ought to be every day that we're thanking You for the gift of Calvary, Lord. Not just of a manger, but of a cross. And Father, we thank You uh, for sending Your Son to die for our sins. Now help us, Lord, to honor You this morning and to be obedient and submissive to Your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I would say there's been a lot of people preach on Isaiah chapter 9 around this time of the year. I've preached on it before, and it is a very typical place to preach around Christmas time uh, because it deals with the idea of the incarnation of Christ. Really, if we were to pick a theme for Christmas, it would be that. It would not be eggnog. It would not be Christmas trees and, and tinsel. It wouldn't be gift giving. It, it wouldn't be sweaters. Uh, what the theme of Christmas would be would be the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's what was taking place. That's what makes Christmas Christmas. Uh, you say, what would you have if you took uh, the incarnation out of Christmas? Well, you wouldn't have anything. Because that's what took place uh, in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago, was that God became flesh for you and I. And here in Isaiah chapter number 9, we have a description given very shortly of that event. As you study these two verses, and by the way, uh, this whole chapter in one way or another is dealing prophetically uh, with the Messiah, as much of the book of Isaiah does. But as you read this verse, you'll find that it fits neatly into seven different prophecies that were given concerning the Son of God. Two of these have already been fulfilled in their entirety. Five of them uh, are uh, still to be fulfilled in their entirety. Uh, three of them uh, deal with the Son of God. Three of them deal with the kingdom of heaven. And one of them is a principle that will accomplish these things. And so this morning, I want to say uh, that it's all about Jesus Christ. And as you read these two verses, you'll find all of it is about Jesus Christ. You might say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. It says he's going to be called the Everlasting Father. He will be called the Everlasting Father. And I'll explain to you in a moment uh, why he's going to be called that. Uh, but in this passage of Scripture, I want us to take a few moments this morning and look at these seven prophecies. What is the first thing that's said to us? And let me say that it, it, there would be nothing spectacular about the birth of Christ had it not been uh, for the supernatural element of the birth of Christ, I want to say, first off, we have a prophecy given about Christ's humanity. Look what it says in verse number 6. The Bible says, for unto us a child is born. Now, this is speaking of what took place in Bethlehem. You might say, well, preacher, there's children that are born uh, every day, and that's very true. Uh, there's children born all the time. So what is significant about this? What I'm trying to get you to understand is that if you try to remove the virgin birth from Christianity, it collapses. That's what I'm trying to get you to understand. Why does it say that it's significant that a child was born? Well, back in verse or chapter number 7 of the book of Isaiah, uh, it says that this shall be a sign unto you. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. You see, what took place in Bethlehem was supernatural. What took place in Bethlehem never happened before. And listen to me, it'll never happen again. A virgin conceived uh, through the power and influence of the Holy Ghost, and God was born in the flesh. What a tremendous truth. 
Do you realize that this separates uh, the idea of God that the Bible presents from any other idea of God in any other religious structure or ideal system in the entire world? And you might say, well, now, wait a minute, preacher. Uh, there's been other people that other religions have said were born of a virgin. Well, that's very true. You say, what's the difference? They weren't actually born of a virgin. That's the difference. <laughs> they didn't have the life to prove it. They didn't have the death to prove it. And listen to me this morning. They didn't have the resurrection to prove it. He was born of a virgin. Uh, you say, why is that significant? Because that was the only means through which God could be manifest in the flesh. I mean, this is a phenomenal thought. It tells me a few things about God. It tells me of God's desire, doesn't it? That God has a desire to be close to His creation. This is unusual in the pantheon of false gods that exist in, in the ideology of today's culture. You'll find that in every other religion, I don't even like comparing Christianity with other religions, because Christianity isn't a religion, uh, but you know what I mean when I say that. In every other thought system or ideal system, God's always trying to get as far away from His creation as He possibly can. But do you know that's not the case in Bible Christianity? The Bible teaches us that uh, so that God could redeem us, it behooved Him to be made like unto His brethren. This had never happened before. God becoming flesh. He walked this earth. If we had lived at that time, been in Jerusalem, been around Him, we could have seen Him the same way that I'm looking at you right now. It was a literal incarnation. That was literally God in the flesh. It tells me something about His desires, but it tells me something about His empathy. That He was willing to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. What a phenomenal thought. That God was willing to suffer for you and for me. Uh, you understand that there were some things that were not intrinsic to God, and suffering was one of them. You ever wonder why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered? Uh, it, it was not an academic uh, uh, knowledge. It was not an academic learning. It was an experiential learning. It was a learning for our benefit, not for his benefit. He had to uh, suffer these things and endure these things so that you and I could have confidence when we pray that we have an intercessor that knows what we are going through. It tells me that God's willing to suffer uh, for you and me, but it tells me of God's ultimate plan. And we find it there in the next phrase that's given. Uh, we have a prophecy about His humanity, but right sandwiched next to it, we have a prophecy about His divinity. The Bible says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. He's the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. I, I, I mean, I, listen, I, I know these are things that we know, but until we know them, it's not going to change our life. He was literally God, Brother Ralph. When you looked into the eyes of the Savior, you were looking into the eyes of the One that existed before anything existed. You were looking into the eyes of the one that, that witnessed when creation was flung into existence. You were the one that was witnessing uh, the eyes of the one that had watched Israel and watched over Israel uh, for thousands of years. Uh, you were seeing, you were looking God in the eye. Do you know he was a 100% man? But at the same time, he was a 100% God. He did not relinquish any of his deity to become a man. He did not compromise His divinity to come to this earth and to walk amongst us. You say, I don't understand that. Yeah, join the club. <laughs> 
Lot, I don't understand about that. Say, so how do you know it happened? Well, or, because the Bible says so. Amen? You see, the scientists, they don't like that. Do you know that scientists cannot explain exactly what energy is, Brother Ralph? They can observe it. They can measure it. They can watch its patterns. But if you ask a physicist what energy actually is, they have no definition for it. But I guarantee you they believe in energy, don't they, Brother Ralph? You see, scientists like to tell you, uh, and I say scientists, let me, let me back up and say atheistic scientists. It's not science that demands that we forsake God. It's atheists that demand that we forsake God. Nothing wrong with science, amen? Science, science is beholding the signature of the Creator. That's what science is. Uh, but uh, science uh, does not lead us away from God. It leads us to God. But atheists, they want us to believe that they understand everything in this natural world. Far from it. You know how they uh, accept it? They accept it by faith. Because atheism is just as much a religion as any other religion. It must be accepted by faith. Anyway, that, that was free. That wasn't really... I, I want, Ralph asked for that, was why I did that. That wasn't part of the sermon. But sure, I believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he was already a son. It does not say a son was born, it says a child was born. You say, what is the distinction there? Uh, what, what is God trying to tell us? It, it tells us that though his physical body at one time did not exist, and then at one time did exist, he as a person has always existed. He was the Son of God before Bethlehem. He's still the Son of God after Calvary. He'll always be the Son of God. This is, this is in essence what Christmas really is about. That God would send His Son to this earth with a cross in mind, with a cross in view, and allow Him to be born of a virgin and manifest in the flesh to you and to I. We see a prophecy about His humanity. For unto us a child is born. We find a prophecy concerning His divinity. Unto us a son is given. But I like this next verse. Uh, those were the two verses that related past tense. Those things have already happened. A child has already been born. We wouldn't be talking about Christmas if he hadn't. A son has already been given. We wouldn't even be here with the church building if that hadn't happened. But now we have something that in a sense has not been completely fulfilled or not visibly fulfilled. The Bible says, look at verse number 6, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Let me say we have a prophecy about his humanity and a prophecy about his divinity. But here we have a prophecy about his authority. His authority. Now let me say that his authority is absolute. God's authority is absolute. His authority is absolute over Christians, whether we like it or not. The only reason we can rebel against God is because he chooses to allow us to rebel against him. Uh, the only reason that we can... And you know, you can only go so far, Brother Ralph... You can only go so far before God will cut you short. You can only go so far before God will cut you short. I just got news about a young man that was out of the will of God, and I've known him for years. God took him out of this world because he was out of the will of God. You say, preacher, you don't know that. Well, it don't take a rocket scientist. You whip your children, you better believe God will whip his children. Right? Right? You'll whip yours, God will whip his. We better be careful where we tread. His authority is absolute over Christians. Let me say his authority is absolute over creation. That was evidenced over and over and over again through the Gospels, wasn't it, Brother Ralph? And over and over and over again. 
the, the seas rose up against that little uh, body of uh, disciples there in the ship, and they began to uh, be fearful, and their faith began to waver. And Christ stepped out and lifted that eternal hand and calmed the sea. You know what they said? They said, we never saw it like this. <laughs> you know, that's what you'll say when God calms the storm in your life. I never saw it like that. You and I, if we if we have bread and fish and, and uh, you know, maybe some water after we eat it, it's just et. Amen. That's the past tense of, of eat, isn't it? Et. It's just edited. Not the Son of God. He takes that tangible, that, that, that molecular mass and breaks it and breaks it and breaks it and breaks it. And he breaks it as many times as he wants to break it. To nourish as many people as he wants to nourish. You ever wonder why God's breaking you? Maybe there's some people God's nourishing through it. You might have to keep being broken until everybody's fed. But God's got a purpose. He won't break you till there's nothing there. He won't break you till you're, there's nothing there. His authority is absolute over creation. But could I say his authority is absolute, not only over creation. I understand the cosmos is within his creation. But when I speak of the cosmos, I, I think of the idea of the political powers, the, the influences of this world. And can I say that whether this world likes to acknowledge it or not, Christ is still king. He's still king. He's not waiting to be king. He is king. When he comes back, he's not coming back to become king of kings. He's coming back as king of kings. His authority is absolute. Now, there's a, a future sense or a prophetic sense even still now concerning this phrasing. Because right now, the world does not acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ. That's evident. I mean, you can turn your TV on, watch it for two minutes and find out that the world doesn't acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ. And let me say that a lot of Christians don't acknowledge the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's why they play tug-of-war with God throughout their whole Christian walk. But can I say there's coming a day, the Bible teaches, where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Hey, i got good news for you, Christian. There's coming a day when it don't matter how loud the sodomites cry and moan and complain, it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to matter how loud the Muslims cry and moan and complain. And it's not going to matter how many markets they blow up and how many people they kill and how many threats they make. There's coming a day when his enemies will be made his footstool. Because his authority is absolute. Whether we like it or not, whether we accept it or not, that doesn't change anything. He's still king. He's still king. God is going to exert his authority one day. He said, when will that happen? Well, that's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's when that's going to take place. The second coming of Christ has two advents. It has uh, the rapture, and then it has the glorious uh, appearing. The rapture is going to be something we call it secret. Uh, it's not going to be known to the world at large. They'll believe a strong delusion, and they will reject the idea that God has raptured his church. Uh, but then, seven years later, the end of the Great Tribulation period, the Bible teaches, and I'm skipping over a lot when I say that. I mean, I'm saying a mouthful when I say that. But suffice it to say that after this world has rocked and reeled for seven years, the Bible teaches that the eastern sky will split and the Son of God will step out into this realm once again to take hold of His kingdom. You say, what are they all going to do on that day? They're not going to do anything on that day, not against Him anyways. They're going to try, but he'll destroy him with the glory and power of his coming. That's what the Bible says. 
with a sharp two-edged sword that proceedeth out of his mouth. You say, what is that? That's the Word of God. So how's he going to do that? Well, he spoke them into existence. He can speak them out of existence. That's how powerful the Word of God is. We don't recognize it because we don't recognize his authority. But that day his authority will be manifest. Let me say we have a word about his humanity and we have a word about his divinity. We have a prophecy uh, about uh, his authority. But let me say we have a prophecy concerning his identity. And I shall call his name Wonderful. Wonderful. Counselor. The Mighty God. The Everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. Let me just... Let me just, just I'm not going to have time to, to really spend time. But let me just say that first off, this world does not recognize any of these things about Jesus Christ, at least not at large. There are believers that recognize all of these things, I hope, about Jesus Christ. But the world at large, and this is speaking of the world at large. And by the way, the kingdom of Jesus Christ will be a worldwide kingdom. A worldwide kingdom. With Jerusalem as its center point. You say, that's nonsense. No, that's Bible. Open, open the Bible and read it. It says... Revelation, chapter number 20, read it, a millennial kingdom. And the Bible teaches that all of these five names are going to be accepted truths about Jesus Christ. Let me say that first off, they're going to finally accept His goodness. They're going to call Him wonderful. I liked how one old preacher said it. He described uh, a scenario in which this could happen. I understand it's a little bit of sanctified imagination, but but I could kind of see this being the case. You, you can imagine what it will be like in the aftermath of the Battle of Armageddon. I think sometimes we think of the world being being very post-apocalyptic because it's post-apocalyptic, you know. But we think of technology of having collapsed and all of these things being in in utter disarray. I don't know about you, but the Bible teaches in the book of Revelation that there's going to be two witnesses in chapter number 11. The Bible teaches that they're going to uh, uh, be slain and lay in the street for three days. And the Bible teaches that all eyes shall see them. Now, that doesn't sound to me like technology has completely shut down. There's no means by which every eye could see them except through technology. But hey, you can get on your computer, you can get on Google Earth and see every single square inch of this world just about right now. I think technology is very much going to exist. And this old preacher described what it will be like in the days after when the Son of God has set up His kingdom in Jerusalem. And pretty soon the media shows up, because <laughs> they always show up. Uh, you, you know, the, 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 the vultures always show up after there's been a death. They, no, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking, I'm picking at you. But the media shows up, and they go to interview him. And can you imagine what it'll be like? This man that the entire world has denied as just a fraud and a charlatan uh, for so many years. And they walk into that room, and they sit down, and they look upon him. And I can kind of imagine this old preacher said whenever they uh, call back to their editor. And the editor says, well, what did he say? What was it like? What did he look like? And they had looked upon the face of the Son of God. And I can just imagine that they say, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. When he speaks, it's like honey drips from his lips. Grace in his voice. Love in his eyes. Authority in his hands. He is God upon this earth. There'll come a day when all the world will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is wonderful. He's wonderful to me right now. <laughs> I mean, all the time. I, I don't just mean, I don't just describe that as just an adjective of how I feel about Him, but an action. He, he acts wonderfully to me all the time. But the world doesn't acknowledge that. There'll come a day when they will. 
There'll come a day that they will acknowledge his goodness. There'll come a day when they'll acknowledge his guidance, Brother Ralph. They shall call him counselor. Counselor. Right now, this world has no use for the Word of God. I mean, isn't that true? They spend all their time trying to correct it and change it and make it something that they like. Obvious they don't have any appreciation for the Word of God. I was talking to someone about the, you know, this, this, this duck stuff has took us over, Brother Ralph. Everybody's talking about the duck guy. And, uh, you know, someone made a statement the other day, a preacher friend. He said, I don't see why it's news that a Bible believer or a Christian uh, claiming sodomy is a sin. He said, I don't see why that's news. I agree with that statement. But I said to him, I said, well, brother, let me tell you the difference. I said, it does not surprise me one bit when a person that believes in the inspiration of the Bible believes that sodomy is a sin. But when you take the inspiration of the Bible off the table, then the Bible becomes a relative book that you can change to mean whatever you want. So that's why there's so many Christians that claim they're Bible Christians uh, that uh, believe uh, that sodomy is okay and that it's an alternative lifestyle. Yeah, it's alternative. Alternative to what God sanctions. Alternative to what God considers righteous. Alternative to what God accepts. Alternative to what God loves. Yeah, it's an alternative lifestyle. Sin is what it is. Isn't that right? I mean, I know it's Christmas, but sin's still sin, right? Yeah. But when people don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible, they can make it mean anything they want. That's why you have so many Christians accepting of evolution and of sodomy and of, all, uh, uh, and of adultery and of alcoholism and of all these different things. Because they don't really believe the Bible means what it says anyway. If you don't believe the Bible means what it says, then it ain't going to make no difference. Let me tell you, there's coming a day when the counsel of God will not be so lightly cast off. There's coming a day when they will look to him as counselor. There's coming a day when the word of God will not be slighted. Let me say there, uh, that it speaks of his goodness. Let me say it speaks of his guidance. They should call him wonderful counselor, but it speaks of his Godhead, the mighty God. No more will it be said that Jesus was just a teacher, Brother Ralph. No more will it be said that Jesus was the lover of Mary Magdalene. Do you hear me this morning? No more will it be said that there was an illegitimate child that became a holy grail of... What nonsense! No more will it be said. No more will his deity be doubted. He will be called the mighty God. The God of the universe. Let me say that not only his goodness and his guidance and his Godhead, but let me say that his goings forth, Brother Ralph, will be recognized. Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. You say, why does the Bible call Him Father? He's not the Father, He's the Son. Well, even He said, I and my Father are one. What He's saying is this, I did not begin to exist in Bethlehem. I was merely incarnated in Bethlehem with the chief purpose of revealing the Father to this world. He is the everlasting Father. You say, preacher, are you saying that there is no Trinity? No, of course there's a Trinity. Of course there's a Trinity. But Christ is the expression of that Trinity. In Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And He is the express image of God's glory. 
So he, in essence, just as he said to Philip, Philip said, uh, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. And he said, Philip, have I been so long time with thee and thou hast not known me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What he's saying is, Philip, don't you get it yet? I am God. I am the expression of God the Father. The Bible says in Psalms chapter 90 and verse 2 that his goings forth, he is from everlasting to everlasting. No more will uh, atheists like Richard Dawkins get up and mock and say, who created the Creator? Because they'll be face to face with the Creator. No more, no more will he be mocked. He will be seen as the everlasting Father. But let me say this, and I like this. Not only his goodness and his guidance and his Godhead uh, and his goings forth, Brother Ralph, but this world's finally going to recognize his grace. The Prince of Peace. Why is he the Prince of Peace? He's not the Prince of Peace because he provides international peace. There'll come a day when he will. But, but he's already the Prince of Peace. He's not the Prince of Peace because he's going to give peace in the Middle East. One day he will. But do you know that outward peace comes from one place, Brother Ralph? It comes from inward peace. Uh, it comes from inward peace. You say, uh, show me chapter and verse. Uh, James said, from whence come uh, wars and fightings among you? Come they not even of your uh, members? Your lusts and your members. He said, your outward fighting is because of your inward fighting. Your outward turmoil is because of your inward turmoil. There's a lot of people in this world with outward turmoil, and they're trying to go to everything in the world to solve it and to fix it, when it's never going to get fixed until the God of heaven speaks peace to that inward turmoil. That's what it's going to take for them to ever have peace. Well, there's going to come a day when the grace of God will be known and manifest all over this world. You know, it's all about grace. It's always all been about grace. Because grace is the only means to which God can effectively communicate Himself to mankind. You say, why is that, preacher? Because grace is one of His attributes. If He did not express it by grace, He could not express grace. But grace is one of His attributes. And so it could never have been by works. Works would have never been sufficient, because if it had been by works, it would not have expressed His grace. Grace is the only means through which God could express Himself to humanity in a full and complete way. We have a word about His identity. I'm going to try to hurry. I'm just going to run through these. Amen. Or tell you that anyways. I want you to look with me at uh, verse number 7. We have a word given about His eternality. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. You say, how long is that kingdom going to last? Just a thousand years? No. No. He's going to reign unchallenged for a thousand years. Say, why is that? Well, because the devil will be chained up in a bottomless pit. You say, that's fairy tale. No, that's Bible. Open your Bible and read it. Read somewhere past John 14 and you'll find it. Amen? Uh, re- read something other than Psalms and Proverbs and you'll find it. Read in the book of Revelation. It's there. Amen? It's there. For a thousand years he will reign unchallenged. And then Satan will be loosed from the bottomless pit and he'll gather from the four corners of the earth the armies, Gog and Magog. They will encamp themselves around Jerusalem. You say, what's going to happen then? Well, God's going to win, because that's what God always does. He's going to consume them with fire out of heaven. But His kingdom is not going to cease after a thousand years. His kingdom is eternal. Hey, won't it be good to quit having elections? (laughs) I mean, I know that's not the biggest thing in the world, 
But I'm already dreading 2016, because that's all it's going to be for a year solid. It'll be good to know who's going to be on the throne through all eternity, won't it? And to know He's the right one. And to know He's the best one. And to know He's the immaculate one. And to know that He is the uh, Son of God. And to know that He is God in the flesh. Oh, what a day that will be when He reigns upon His throne in Jerusalem. You say, how do you know it's going to be in Jerusalem? Because we have a word about His specificity. It says, upon the throne of David and His kingdom. You say, well, that's just spiritual. No, that's not spiritual. Use a little common sense. Was David spiritual? You say, well, you know, maybe. <laughs> no, David was not a, a spiritual ideal. He, I hope he was a spiritual person. I believe that in a sense he was. He was a man after God's own heart. But he was not a figment of the imagination. He was not an allegory. He was not a metaphor. David was a real and literal person. You say, well, what, what was he? What was his station in life? You won't believe this, Brother Ralph. He was a king. You said he was a king. Did he have a kingdom? Sure, he had a kingdom. You say, what was his kingdom? Well, his kingdom was the kingdom of Israel. And you say, well, where's that kingdom at? It's in Israel. I mean, I know it's deep. You say, where did he reign from? (laughs) It's where it gets good. He reigned from Jerusalem. That's where his throne is. And that's the very throne upon which the Son of God will reign. Uh, The specificity of the Word of God is astounding. It's easy to make vague generalities. We was, uh, I was talking to Brother Kerry last night, and, and let me tell you something about Brother Kerry. Brother Kerry is the absolute, teetotally most paranoid person in the world you will ever meet. <laughs> talking about anything. I mean, he's, he, he thinks if you take a picture of him, he'll steal his soul. I mean, he is the most paranoid person in the entire world world about identity theft and stuff like that. And we're sitting around, we're talking, and uh, we got to talking about Target, you know. Forty million people had their uh, their information stole. And he said, see, I told you, I told you. I said, you've been telling everybody that's going to happen as long as I've known you. That don't mean anything. I said, if you go outside every day and say it looks like rain, eventually it's going to rain and you're going to feel like you predicted it. Uh, you see, vague predictions don't mean anything. But the Bible's not full of vague predictions. The Bible's full of specific predictions. <laughs> and now Bethlehem, Ephrata the exact place where Christ would be born. I mean, that's not vague. You don't, you don't just throw a dart at a dartboard and randomly hit that by chance. No, that's prophecy. That's prophecy. The Bible says it will be upon the throne of David. It will be a literal kingdom a literal ki- with a literal king and a literal city, a literal throne, and he will reign forever, forever says there'll be no end forever, no one to challenge him. Let me say finally that there is a word about his ability, Brother Ralph. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You remember I told you that there are three of them, three of them that relate to Christ, three of them that relate to the kingdom, and then there's one of them that is in principle. Here we have our principle. That these things will not be accomplished through, through human ability or through human instrumentation, but these things are going to be accomplished through the, through the supernatural power of God. You say, what is the significance to my life of that preacher? The significance is this, to understand that while a world is spiraling further and further down, that God has the ability to still accomplish His will. 
though the world is getting worse and worse and worse, this is not a hindrance to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Uh, Rather, this is an indication of how close we're getting to Bible prophecy being fulfilled more and more and more. Me and Dad were talking the other day about the economy. I don't know if you know this, but it's bad. It's bad. It's real bad. It's worse than most of us know. It's worse than most of us know. And we were talking about the American economy, and we were talking about the collapse of the American economy. Do you know that America is nowhere mentioned in Bible prophecy? Right? I mean, that, you Bible students, you know that, right? It's not mentioned anywhere in Bible prophecy. Well, that presents a few scenarios to me, Brother Ralph, about how that could take place. That means that America has to be dethroned as a superpower. And we are still the superpower in the world. And how are they going to be dethroned? Well, they could be dethroned in a nuclear sense. But the problem with that, Brother Ralph, is we got a big red button, but everybody else does too. And, and I kind of think if somebody else pushed their big red button, uh, we would too. I don't think it's going to be nuclear. It could be pestilence, uh, but I don't really think pestilence is going to be the, the means which that will happen. You say, why is that, Brother Ralph? Because uh, the, the, way, the way that international travel is, it would spread to other countries as well. I believe we are going to be economically crippled. I believe that's what, because money is what powers it, right? But the problem with that is this. Now, you stay with me. I know I seem obscure right now, but you stay with me. This will bless you here in a second. The significance of that is this. America abounds with natural resources. We're a huge, huge, phenomenally big country. And we abound with natural resources, which means that America will have the capacity to bounce back from an economy that has crumbled given enough time. Now, you can believe what you want, and I understand you'll hear me say it more than anyone, that the coming of Christ is imminent. It could be today, it could be a thousand years from now. The Bible does not give us an indication of when. But let me just tell you what I think about it. Is that okay? We'll call this on my own time, all right? This isn't your time, we're on my time now. Uh, Let me say that I kind of think that the Lord is going to come back during that period of time. After America has crumbled as an economic superpower, but before we have the ability to rebound and to rebuild our economy. You say, when is that, Brother Toby? I have no clue. Nobody knows. But I know this, when I look around at this world and I see it spiraling downward, I say to myself, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Friend, he could come back at any moment. Any moment. We're not waiting We're not waiting for something to take place. He could come back at any moment. You say, I don't believe that. Well, Paul did. Paul said, we wait for the appearing of his dear son. Paul was looking for him. The apostles were looking for him. Peter said that that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The apostles were looking for him. Let me ask you this. This Christmas, are you looking for him? Are you looking for him? If he came back today, what would it mean for you at the judgment seat of Christ? Some of you in the next few days, you're going to see loved ones that you've not seen all year. And it could very well be possible you won't ever see them again. What action will you take to be a witness to them? Not to be rude, not to be cantankerous, but to be compassionate and to be confrontational and to share with them the love of Calvary. That's what it's all about this Christmas, friend. That's what it's it's always about. This Christmas, I, I want to encourage you to do something. I'm done. I want to encourage you to get some of your family on your heart and start praying now. You've got, you've got one, two, three days before you're going to see him. Start praying now that God will give you the ability to open a door. Pray that he'll open a door. 
a means through which to share the gospel with them. Pray for the power of the Holy Ghost to be in the conversation and for God to use you to be a witness to them. Because let me tell you something, just as the zeal of the Lord of hosts is able to perform all these things, the power of the Holy Ghost is able to give you the unction and the power to share the gospel and to work in their heart and influence them. God will not step over their free will, but God is able to make His Word as a fire in their hearts as chaff and to make His Word real in their heart and life.